This is the sidebar for the week of May 19, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. When it comes down to it, you know, in order for there to be a, a, a peace, it's going to require parties to make compromises that are very, very painful and maybe even politically uh, impossible. This week, Robert Deneen. He is a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served in the George W. Bush administration as the Deputy Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Our topic, the history of the Israeli-Arab peace process. Robert Deneen with President Trump in Saudi Arabia and early next week in Israel. Let's take a step back and look at the path to peace in the Middle East. As you look at the last 40 to 50 years between the U.S., Israel, and Israel's neighbors, where have been some of the biggest missed opportunities? Um, Well, I guess the question first has to be uh, missed opportunities for whom? For uh, for the United States or for the parties themselves? because in many ways, uh, people trace some of the earliest missed opportunities to the end of the 1948 war. Um, uh, there's a whole cottage industry of, of scholarship that, that has evolved um, about the end of the war uh, that was the Israeli independence war, um, and whether or not there were opportunities missed even as early as then uh, to try to reach a peace agreement. Because recall, uh, with the 48 war, which ended uh, basically in January 49, uh, Israel reached uh, armistice agreements uh, with its neighbors. Um, and uh, those armistice agreements, it was believed, would soon follow, uh, be followed by peace agreements. Um, and that never happened. And now, as we near the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, that, that really in many ways shaped the, the Middle East and the Arab-Israeli and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or at least the contours of it as we know it, um, that same question you know, uh, obtains. Because in 67, Israel uh, uh, you know, expanded its territory, occupied the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, Sinai. Uh, and it was in that period that the basic formula was enshrined in UN Security Council Resolution 242 about that peace would be based on land for peace, that the, that, you know, Israel would only return territories, you know, in return for secure and recognized borders uh, and peace agreements. And, and the effort ever since has been to try to achieve that. And, you know, there've been partial successes. We've had the most importantly being Israel, the Israel, Egypt peace um, and the Israel, Jordan peace. Uh, Israelis today ask whether or not it was a, that maybe it was fortuitous that they did not re- reach a peace agreement with Syria because it would have required them to have given up the Golan Heights and look at where we are today. And so maybe the failure to reach a peace agreement with Syria was really a blessing. But I think the question now focuses on the Palestinian question. Um, and and I think that's where you really want to go. But I think you have to contextualize it into the the larger conflict, and and so that's 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 why I did that just now. But, you know, it, it's you know one can be a Monday morning quarterback. I mean, I think it's I think what has been there have been a number of of, of failures. Um, I think one of the biggest failures have been to implement agreements as they've been um, agreed upon. 
there's just so much blame to go around. I don't, you know, and so much of the cottage industry is about blaming one particular party. You know, Israelis will want to blame the Palestinians. The Palestinians will want to blame the Israelis. Everyone will want to blame the United States uh, for either doing too much or doing too little. Um, but, you know, I think overall, the, you know, the, the, the biggest problem, you know, when I try to think about why is there an absence of peace, you know, ultimately comes to real, strong and effective leadership in the region themselves. Uh, in the region itself and among the parties themselves. Um, and at different times, at different places, there's been a real failure of leadership. Um, or put not, otherwise, that when it comes down to it, you know, in order for there to be a, a, a peace, it's going to require parties to make compromises that are very, very painful and maybe even politically uh, impossible. Well, let me follow up on that point and talk specifically about Israel and the Palestinian territory, because how much of it is based on the personalities, the leadership of the Israeli prime minister, the Palestinian leader, and who is in the Oval Office? Well, there are different schools of thought on this. I subscribe to the view that that that, that who is in power matters fundamentally, um, because Ultimately, those are the people who have to make the decisions. Those are the people who decide that um, ultimately a moment has to either be seized or not, that now is the decisive moment or not. Um, and see, we've seen at, you know, at various times uh, leaders like, uh, like Anwar Sadat, who decided that uh, he would break with all convention – and go to Jerusalem. We saw Prime Minister uh, Sharon at a certain point decide uh, that the peace process as it was being configured uh, was not working, um, and therefore he decided to take a bold, decisive, and completely unexpected step and withdraw Israeli forces from uh, Gaza. Not just forces, all Israeli uh, uh, settlers, all Israeli, the whole entire Israeli presence from Gaza. So individuals make historic decisions. Sometimes they're good decisions, sometimes they're bad decisions, but they are big decisions. Now, they don't do it in a vacuum and they don't do it alone, but ultimately, unless they are willing to do that and then corral the, the forces behind them, uh, then, then things don't happen. I mean, we've seen Palestinian leaders, uh, you know, Yasser Arafat, uh, Despite the complex and and uh, you know very mixed uh, historical legacy, made a decision to uh, to recognize Israel and sign a peace agreement with Israel uh, in 1993. Um, that that took you know that was a leadership decision that was very much dependent on an individual, um, and it wouldn't have happened had he not made that decision. Uh, similarly, with Yitzhak Rabin on the other side, uh, made the historic, courageous decision to to sign that same agreement, and look what happened—he paid with his life for it. Um, in the same way that Sadat paid with his life. So the the fact that both Rabin and Sadat were assassinated for the decisions they made show that their people think that 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 individuals matter, that the, the, the decisions they took were fundamental, and that and it shows how high the, the, the stakes are. 
And, of course, it was Egyptian President Anwar Sadat who joined the Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin nearly 40 years ago, 1978. That famous picture from the North Lawn of the White House with President Jimmy Carter after the Camp David Peace Accords. As you look back at that moment and reflect on where we are today, what are the successes, what are the failures of that agreement? Look, uh, the agreement between Egypt and Israel. You're yes. Y- yes. Look, I mean, the, the, overall, at a strategic level, that agreement has changed the strategic equation in the Middle East. Um, it has uh, the agreement, the peace agreement between Israel and Egypt ended the era of Israeli-Arab wars in which Israel and the Arab states had fought repeatedly, 48, 56, 67, 73. Um, The peace agreement between Israel and Egypt um, ended the – took the the strongest Arab army out of the confrontation with Israel and into the peace camp. And it has been a – a cold peace. It's been a very unsatisfying peace. It has not been a peace between peoples, but it has been a a peace between two very strong nations uh, that has endured, that has been scrupulously uh, uh, enforced, and it has uh, meant that we've not had further Israeli-Arab wars in the region, and that is a, a, a huge success for for uh, the parties, for American leadership. Uh, And so I think we have to be very clear-eyed that this is a huge um, pillar of Israeli security. It's a huge pillar of Egyptian security today, and that allows them to to focus on on other threats that they each respectively face. Now, the disappointments that are therein is the fact that this is not a a warm peace, that Egyptians and Israelis do not interact. There is barely any tourism uh, between the two countries. There's not much uh, cultural exchange. Uh, Israel is still somewhat vilified in Egypt. Um, It's so dangerous for Israelis in Egypt that the embassy uh, that Israel has there is largely unmanned. Israel's uh, current ambassador to Egypt is not in residence at the moment because the situation is so dangerous. But that is derivative of some larger problems that Egypt is facing as well uh, in its insecurity environment. Um, So the peace is very unsatisfying at the popular level. It is not a warm peace, but but at the strategic level, it's it's critical and 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 a huge success, I would say. And Robert Deneen, more recently, 17 years ago, a different set of players and a different set of circumstances, but President Bill Clinton trying to replicate another Camp David summit. Why did it fail? Well, we're still trying to understand that. Um, you know, at the time, uh, President Clinton came out at the end of the, the summit and essentially fingered uh, Yasser Arafat. Uh, for for the failure of the agree- of, of Camp David to, to succeed and and he um, reportedly told uh, incoming President Bush uh, in 2000 um, at the end of 2000 and in early 2001 don't trust Yasser Arafat and so uh, from from President Clinton's point of view uh, the Palestinians were largely to blame um, I think the fact that there have been subsequent negotiations and the fact that Israel has made subsequent negotiation uh, concessions uh, suggest that maybe um, 
the deal simply wasn't quite there. That that the you know more analytically or more dispassionately, one can say that the Israeli maximum offer and the Palestinian uh, minimal requirements did not overlap, and that has been the enduring problem. Uh, a, a, Prime Minister Ehud Barak, uh, rather Ehud Olmert, subsequently, uh, in subsequent negotiations that was launched by what was called the Annapolis process under President Bush. Uh, there was a serious uh, set of negotiations that took place with Mahmoud Abbas and Prime Minister Olmert, um, culminating in a even for, even further reaching uh, uh, Israeli offer uh, that was uh, never really reacted to, or that is um, by the by. Prime Minister, or rather President Abbas. Um, and uh, and so, once again, then, you know, uh, President um, Obama uh, presented an, uh, an offer uh, in March of, of 2014 in the Oval Office uh, with, uh, uh, with President Abbas, um, and it was not accepted. So, what that tells you is that the the deals that have been put forward simply just were not uh, considered acceptable. We now are in a situation today with President Trump about to uh, uh, travel to the Holy Land and, and in pursuit of what he calls the ultimate deal. It raises the fundamental question is, is there a deal there to be had? Is, is the maximum Israeli uh, offer and the Palestinian minimum acceptable uh, a deal – uh, is there an overlap there? Can there be? Is there a bridging uh, that is possible that that can be there, on the one hand, and then the, it relates to the earlier set of questions: Is there the leadership in place that could take the courageous decisions to accept um, what that would mean on both sides? And I'd say there, I don't know anybody um, who believes that those stars are lined up, uh, either in terms of the deal or in terms of the leadership or in terms of the respective political alignments on each side, that is, the Israeli and Palestinian sides. But nonetheless, the president seems to think he can do it. Robert Deneen, you've spent your adult life focused on this issue, working with former Prime Minister Tony Blair as a quartet representative in the region, also in the George W. Bush administration. So you answered one of my questions, is that even possible? What are the marching orders for President Trump? What does he need to do, and how does he get there to achieve, as you put put it so well, the ultimate peace, the ultimate yeah. deal? Uh, just to be clear, I served in every administration from Ronald Reagan through Barack Obama, so I, I, I always was a, a career person, and, and I sort of watched this movie uh, <laughs> over many years. Um, and uh, you Does know, it I seem like that, a sequel? Well, you know, um, it, it it raises a lot of questions of you know, are we seeing a reprise of the of the same old movie um, when President Trump stood up uh, in the White House with President Abbas? And basically said, you know, I want to finish what was started at at uh, as part of the Oslo Accords. It did raise a, you know, uh, uh, the question of, you know, have we seen this movie before? Because there is a, there is the, the opportunity, let's say, that that may exist is is a changing regional environment in the Middle East. Um, 
that is the the way in which the the larger regional context has has changed as a result of many things from the Arab uprisings to the wars that have taken place subsequently may also provide some opportunities um, for a different approach. And I think the the question I'm asking, paramount question on my mind is when President Trump goes to Saudi Arabia and then subsequently goes to Israel and then goes to Bethlehem and meets with um, President Abbas, is he just going to pursue the same approach in which it's about trying to bring Israeli and Palestinian leaders together to try to hammer out a deal on the on the core issues that have just been too difficult for previous presidents to, to bring the parties to agreement on? Or is a different approach going to be adopted that somehow tries to bring in the fact that you have a regional environment in which you have certain states in the in the Middle East, uh, Sunni states that had traditionally been the most implacably opposed to any uh, peace with Israel, who may be more uh, favorably disposed towards peace because they see larger threats um, in the region. So, particularly, you have countries now in the in the in the in the Gulf, uh, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Qatar, others who really are are much more worried about Iran than anything, um, and they see Israel as a as a potential. Um, asset and ally and 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 not their strategic threat uh they're at the same time you have a country like egypt which has made peace with israel that now enjoys closer cooperation on the military side with israel than we've seen perhaps ever because of the threats that egypt faces from isis in sinai um and others uh you know the muslim brotherhood so the both the the so the dangers that exist in the middle east the shared objectives that align israel with a number of states that had historically been among the the strongest opponents to israel may may actually be uh used and and leveraged to help bring a deal uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. That's that's the question, you know, that I'm asking is, will will the U.S. try to therefore adopt a different approach that makes that puts less of the burden of decision making on President Abbas? Put it another way, when Arafat said no at Camp David uh, to President Clinton, he said, "Look, I am not empowered to make the kind of." De- historic compromises you're asking me to make. You're asking me to make, to give up uh, or make concessions in Jerusalem. This is not a Palestinian uh, interest only. This is an Arab interest. This is a Muslim interest. Uh, and because of the, the historic uh, role that uh, Jerusalem plays, not only to in Judaism and Christianity, but also to Islam. And so only at that point did the the administration start to try to rally the Saudis and the Egyptians to to, to be supportive. So we should have learned from that mistake that that you know if you want to really make forward progress um, on some of these issues, you're going to need a larger uh, a larger framework. And so I'd like to see if we are if President Trump really is going to go down this route, at least a, a different approach, because otherwise there's no reason to believe that the 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 the, the Factors that that prevented President Obama and Secretary of State um, Kerry from making peace will not, you know, thwart uh, President Trump and his efforts. And as you well know, part of that history includes the location of the U.S. embassy. We know now that uh, the U.S. embassy, for the moment, will remain in Tel Aviv. Some have advocated that we move it to Jerusalem. Can you explain why this is an issue? <laughs> 
How much time do we have? Um, it's a huge issue for so many reasons. I mean, Jerusalem is the is the is the core of the conflict. Uh, you know, Zionism, the national liberation movement of the Jewish people that created the state of Israel. Um, the name is Zion. Zion is in is Jerusalem. For uh, so the, you know, Jerusalem lies at the heart of. Um, of 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 the Jewish people's yearning for uh, return to 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 their historic homeland. At the same time, Jerusalem is the historic cradle of 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 uh, Western civilization of Christianity. Uh, it's uh, one of the holiest places in Islam. So, this the the city of Jerusalem itself is is just so um, so. Uh, important so much so that when the united nations in 1947 decided that the only way that this conflict could be resolved between the competing claims between jews and arabs for the land of, that was then called palestine was to divide it to partition it um and but to leave jerusalem separate um and so the resolution uh, that that created the state of Israel um, in 1940. The, the the resolution was passed in November 1947. Called for there to be two states, an Arab one and a Jewish one, with Jerusalem to be a corpus separatum, an independent entity. And that decision, we then had the 1948 war, and basically both the Arabs and the Israelis. Israel declared independence. The Arabs opposed it, but both sides. The the war ended with. Um, Israel occupying the western half of the city, the Jordanian forces occupying the eastern part of the city, and both sides saying, We're, <laughs> there isn't going to be a corpus separatum. But U.S. policy from that day was still to say, you know what, we don't recognize um, either side's uh, place in Jerusalem. Um, and that dates back from 1948. So from 1948 till this day, U.S. policy has been out of sync, let's say, with the realities on the ground. Um, we have our former policy has been that in, that Jerusalem should be a corpus separatum. Now that changed when the Oslo Accords uh, were reached, and U.S. policy then said, "Well, okay, when the Israelis and the Palestinians finally agree upon um, all the issues that uh, divide them, uh, territory, refugees, um, settlements." They, too, shall um, agree upon whatever agreement they reach on Jerusalem. At that point, we will recognize Jerusalem as, as um, uh, the capital of Israel. And we've had subsequent le uh, legislation that calls upon the president to recognize uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, but every six months when this uh, legislation um, comes up uh, for uh, uh, what is a presidential um, determination? The the the, the admin, every administration has invoked a national security waiver to say yes, we agree in theory we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, but the time is not ripe. Uh, it is for whatever reasons, uh, either security reasons or peacemaking reasons, we need to defer it in order to uh, uh, to let the situation uh, develop in a better way. And President. Well, then candidate Trump said, I'm going to do it regardless. Uh, I'm going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. And because President Trump has invoked such a different style, uh, people said, wow, he really means it. I mean, President Obama as candidate, just like President Bush 
43 as candidate, also said they were going to move the embassy, but then they became president, and, that, and people said, okay, now you know they understand that certain realities are going to force them to sign that waiver that I referred to. President Trump now, it seems, is about to adopt that same policy, although it's not clear. And also not clear is how President Trump is going to use the threat of moving the embassy uh, to Israel to Jerusalem will affect his strategy for trying to leverage the parties to a peace deal. So, you know, it's just the unpredictability, frankly, of President Trump that he encourages that is being used here as a possible lever uh, uh, for the parties. But we've seen such um, such an evolution in, in the president's approach towards this conflict already, even in the time that he's been in office, it's left everyone who, who watches this issue um, uncertain as to where it's going to go and, and what the president's going to do, even when it comes to moving the embassy. So when he came to into office in January, it, it seemed that it would it was going to be just a matter of days and before he would do it. Um, and then it sort of receded as he talked to some Arab leaders, as he started to engage on the issue. Um, and so this leaves us now in a, in a place where it looks like he's not going to uh, move the embassy imminently. Uh, but I would not take it off the table either as a, as a possibility, and I think that's an issue to watch, less so on this trip that's coming up, but in the in the weeks and months ahead as he um, indicates how he per- plans to pursue this uh, peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. Robert Deneen, having served in five administrations and currently a senior fellow for Mideast Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, we thank you for your time and your perspective. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.